The Jewish views on Israeli Apartheid Week. Just how does the campaign impact on global Jewry and potentially on peace negotiations? Amy Winehouse, a family portrait. As an exhibition will showcase some of her possessions, her father Mitch shares some of his memories. And South London Liberal Synagogue tell us why they are determined to do their bit for Syrian refugees. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Bishop of Litchfield has said that Israel Apartheid Week is neither helpful nor constructive. Dr. Michael Ipgrave, who is also chair of the Council of Christians and Jews, made the comment as events take place across British student campuses, highlighting perceived social injustices in Israel and the West Bank. Dr. Ibgrave added that it can often close down dialogue and leave Jewish students feeling intimidated at a time of rising anti-Semitism. Sir Philip Green, the Jewish billionaire who owned the high street giant BHS for 15 years, has paid £363 million towards the deficit of the collapsed retailer's pension scheme. It is, though, significantly less than the £571 million hole that was left when it went bust almost a year ago. Sir Philip had been grilled by MPs over his sale of BHS to former bankrupt Dominic Chappelle for just a pound. There were demands made that Sir Philip should lose his knighthood, but he now says the matter is concluded. Boris Johnson will visit Israel next week for his first full trip since becoming Foreign Secretary. It comes six months after he attended the funeral of Shimon Peres. It's believed he'll hold high-level meetings in Jerusalem. The former mayor of London also proved a hit in Israel when he led a trade mission to the country in the final stages of his time at City Hall. At that time, he denounced boycotts, which was applauded by Israel's supporters, but led to the cancellation of meetings in the West Bank. The veteran Labour MP for Manchester Gorton, Sir Gerald Kaufman, has died at the age of 86. He was the oldest serving Member of Parliament. He was a long-time staunch critic of Israel. In 2009, he compared the actions of Israeli soldiers in Gaza to those of Nazis, and once said that the Conservative Party was influenced by Jewish money. The Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said Sir Gerald always wanted to bring peace to the Middle East. Mr Corbyn led the tributes, describing him as iconic and irascible. The Commons Speaker, John Burkow, said he was a passionate campaigner for social justice. And finally, the humble bagel caused an incident on a train bound for Peterborough from London this week. Officers from British Transport Police were called in the early hours after some girls, apparently just a teensy bit inebriated, were putting bagels on each other's heads and then on the heads of fellow passengers, some of whom were amused and others not so much. Officers apparently spoke to those on board, but no charges were brought. I guess it's a case of on your head, son, Andrew. Thank you, Viv. North London Raiders Sea played their final game of the season last Sunday morning despite there still being three months of the season left. The Division 2 side played their 20th and final league game, and having been knocked out of both cup competitions, can now focus on the summer. Manager Sam Rose said, It's a strange scenario. I'd have liked for the guys to have more game time, but it just seems this is how the fixtures have fallen. Israel's most successful ever female tennis player, Shahar Peer, has announced her retirement. The 29-year-old, who reached a world ranking of 11 in 2011, has been plagued by injury over the past couple of years. She won eight WTA titles over her 13-year professional career. 
And finally, a record number 40,000 runners turned out for this year's Tel Aviv Marathon. More than 1,800 athletes took part in the main race, which was won by Ethiopian Gezu Beliti Mukunen. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and foreign editor Stephen Areschuk. Welcome to you both. Now, Stephen, the front page headline is really rather one that chokes you up, really. The headline reads, Tragedy for the Girl with the Magic Heart. What's this story about? It's a devastating story of a beautiful girl, a five-year-old girl called Shani Berman from Boreham Wood. Shani was born with a congenital heart defect called pulmonary artresia. It basically means there was a large hole in her heart and that the valve that links to the pulmonary artery that takes blood to the lungs and oxygenates, that was missing. And... The family were told about this six weeks after she was born. She had surgery. They fitted a replacement valve. It seemed to be working, but she had problems when she was about 20 months old. The doctors were treating her at Great Ormond Street Hospital. The parents were told at one point that she wasn't going to make it. She pulled through and she started school at Emmanuel Prep, but sadly, when she came to have her latest surgery, open heart surgery, she didn't pull through. It seems as if any parents listening to this now would fail but to be choked up. I know, Rich, that obviously you're a parent and it must be a very hard story for you to read and also not to mention edit as well. Yeah, our journalists made us aware of this story. Actually, the the tragedy took place two weeks ago now and Shani Berman's parents, Simon and and Juliet and her her siblings have obviously been trying to come to terms with this in in the last two weeks. And I think the sorrow of the story has really resonated amongst the community and we had about a thousand or so interactions with the story, a long line of tributes and messages to the family. So if the family can be given a measure of comfort through the reaction to the story on our website and in the paper, then perhaps that's one small thing. Oh, here is hoping. The other story that you have on the front page this week, Senior Christian Leader Apartheid Week Intimidates. This is obviously our main story on the programme this week, but please do go into detail. Yeah, two big events this week, Pancake Tuesday and Apartheid Week, one of which I particularly like. I was making pancakes this week. One thing I wasn't taking part in is is this pernicious, vile, nasty, mean-spirited event that seeks to paint Israel in the same way as South Africa in in the last part of the 20th century. Now we have a senior Christian leader, a very senior member of the Council of Christians and Jews, Dr. Michael Ipgrave, who's the Bishop of Litchfield. This week, he has hit the nail on the head. He has called Apartheid Week something that, and I think this is the word, intimidates Jews, particularly Jewish students on campus who are confronted with all sorts of vile things like fake checkpoints and maybe feel like they want to just curl up rather than express their identity. Intimidates is is the word. And there has been some success. There have been events at UCL, Exeter University, that have been scrapped, they've been cancelled, in no small part due to the new definition of anti-Semitism that was adopted by the UK government. However, some students have said it's the worst event ever in terms of 
what they've seen. There was an event at King's College by somebody who said he will not mourn the Jewish victims of terrorism, etc. So it's good news, bad news. And I hope that maybe next year people will think twice and hopefully the participation and input of people like senior bishops out of the Jewish community will go some way towards maybe influencing that. So one of the problems with the IAW is that if you were to actually look at their website, which I have done for research purposes, it actually says that the events last nigh on a month. That's how long so-called Israeli Apartheid Week actually lasts. It's nearer a month that all of this goes on. As if a week isn't bad enough, it's nearer four weeks of, frankly, intimidation. I think that that is exactly the word that the bishops used, and it is pretty much spot on. It does feel very intimidating. Don't forget it's all across the world, and it's in its 13th year now. The word intimidating can be used to describe some of the events, but it depends on the event. Some things are simply film screenings. For example, Palestinian showing life in the West Bank, for example. Some things are talks. But where the community has real problems is when you get presenters coming along with very extreme ideological opposition to Israel. And and at that point, it doesn't feel like a fair, reasoned, rational academic debate. And these things usually do occur on campus. It suddenly feels like an Israel hate fest. And that's where the problem comes. It often boils down to just simply the targeting of, of Jewish students, screaming at Jewish students. And obviously, a lot of this boils down to campus life. And campus life should be a time for debate. It should be a time to seek out and discuss things like social justice and and politics. And I think students are perhaps expected to veer towards hatred of Israel for those reasons. And that's where Apartheid Week can sometimes intervene and perhaps poison the topic of conversation. So good riddance to it. I hope the next year it finds a smaller niche rather than taking up pages in our paper and others. There is one thing to say. Richard mentioned it earlier about a new definition of anti-Semitism. This has come from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and it was adopted by Theresa May in December. This is a wider working definition of anti-Semitism, and it includes one point which specifically says claims that Israel is a racist endeavor. Now, racist endeavor, Israel Apartheid Week, you can see why Israel's supporters are starting to point to this week and say, surely that's now coming within this new definition. We are going to hear much more about this throughout this program. Let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. CST annual dinner has occurred and Gerald Ronson has been making some rather interesting claims. Yeah, this Wednesday night, as we went to press, the Community Security Trust had their annual dinner. Now, every year we are very reassured by the attendance of a senior political figure. And this year it was Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary. She did what many Home Secretaries and senior politicians have done in the past and reassured the Jewish community that the government has its back. 13.4 million was again guaranteed to secure the Jewish community. We put that on page three. Had we known what was actually going to happen, we probably would have put this story on the front page this week. Gerald Ronson, the chairman of the CST, I'll read out what he actually said because he has levelled this extraordinary accusation at the leader of the Labour Party. He told the dinner, and this is talking about Jeremy Corbyn, I don't doubt that the Labour leader opposes anti-Semitism when it comes from the Nazis, but when it comes dressed up as anti-Zionism, he is more likely to ask if he can join in. This is far more 
subversive than the danger posed by the Nazis. This is extraordinary, powerful stuff. He is simply claiming that when it comes to anti-Semitism of you know, the, the Nazis and opposing Cable Street and the Chakrabarti inquiry, he's a prime mover in tackling anti-Semitism. But if it's aligned to anti-Israel rhetoric, where does he stand there? Now, obviously, we asked Corbyn for his remarks and he parroted out the usual stuff. I'm against anti-Semitism in all its forms, blah, blah, blah. But what an extraordinary claim and what an incredible place to make that claim. It is absolutely. And just to make it terribly clear that if Gerald Ronson were to make such comments, it is not necessarily the opinions of the Jewish views. Let's move on to one final story really, really quickly. And that is that an Israeli poet is going underground. (laughs) He is indeed. This is Yehuda Amachai, who died in 2000. But his poem, Ein Yechav, which refers to a Moshav, which is a farming community on the Israeli-Jordanian border, is going to be on the tube trains in the tube stations from March. Uh, so these are the, the adverts that we see that have right, poems. That's right. That's right. As you're sitting, traveling to work, you read the poems on the underground. Next, you might. Next to the Are You Beach Ready posters. <laughs> <laughs> and his poem is alongside those of Mahmoud Darwish he was a Palestinian poet and a, an Italian as well. And, and these are the sort of poems that you see with William Shakespeare. But Amachai's poem talks about hope. He talks about going to the Moshev, seeing date palms, seeing tamarisk trees, but also seeing hope, Hatikva, which is, of course, the Israeli national anthem. It's a beautiful poem. Excellent. So we look forward to seeing the internationalized poetry on the London Underground. That's where we'll have to leave it, though, for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. As you've been hearing, Israeli Apartheid Week is nearly upon us once more. The annual occurrence sees a series of international lectures designed to, quote, raise awareness of Israel's settler colonial project and apartheid system over the Palestinian people and to build support for the growing BDS movement. Needless to say, leaders of various Jewish organisations express their concerns over such campaigns. And let's speak to one of them now. Michael McCann is the director of the Israel-Britain Alliance and joins me on the line now. Michael, can we start with how much of a risk do organisations such as IAW actually pose to the state of Israel? They pose a huge risk because any sane and reasonable person knows that putting the three words Israel Apartheid Week in the same sentence is not sane or reasonable. It's fraudulent, it's fiction, and it's inflammatory. And of course, it's deeply demeaning to the people who fought the apartheid system in South Africa, because from David Ben-Gurion's declaration in May 1948, right up until the present day, Israel has been a, a beacon for democracy. Every person in Israel has full equal rights, we know that 1.6 million Arab Israelis live alongside 1. or 6.8 million Jewish Israelis. And uh, Israel is a place where women enjoy equality, that people are free to practice whatever faith that they hold, and that the LGBT community can flourish. So the question is, is why are people who support the Palestinian cause behind this attempt to frame Israel in that way? I think that you raise a couple of points in what you've just said there. The first thing being, 
that you're saying to anyone who supports what is an untruth or fictional, it obviously means a lot to a lot of people, which begs the question, is what they're arguing for fictional? At the end of the day, those who are in favour of Israeli Apartheid Week clearly want to see some sort of change come about to the way that Israel behaves. Is that an unreasonable thing to think? No, but the position is that if you want to see change come around, well, deal with the real issues. Deal with the real issues, which is the exchange of land for peace. Deal with Hamas terrorism. Deal with terrorism from Hezbollah. Deal with the fact that you have to agree borders. Deal with the fact that you have to deal with security issues. Those are the real issues that we will have to confront if peace is to be achieved. But don't claim that the state of Israel is an apartheid state which differentiates between people based on the colour of the skin or their background. Nothing could be further from the truth. People are free to live their lives in Israel. But there's been a new dimension, of course, in terms of the the way that the Palestinians want to approach peace, which is to avoid those tough questions that I've just mentioned and to attempt to isolate Israel in the world stage. We've seen the nonsense last year about UNESCO passing motions saying that the Jewish people didn't have any links to Jerusalem. We saw the outrageous behaviour of the United Nations Security Council in passing Resolution 2334 on the 23rd of December, two days before Christmas Day in Hanukkah, which said that settlements were the most important issue, and of course they are one issue amongst a lot of important issues. But there's a new dimension to this whole thing as well, and it's the statement made by the Prime Minister Theresa May on the 12th of December last year at a Conservative Friends of Israel lunch, where she said that the government would adopt the new definition of anti-Semitism put forward by the IHRA, which means that Israel Apartheid Week is in fact illegal because it denies the Jewish people the right their right to self-determination by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour and applies double standards to Israel which are not applied to other democratic states. So therefore, these events should not take place on campuses. People are free to hold these views in the privacy of their own home if they want to. I would, I would suggest they, if they looked into Israel, they can find out why it isn't an apartheid state. But there's a public sector equality duty for universities to uphold, and by holding events under the banner Israel Apartheid Week, that is unacceptable and they must stop. But you say they must stop, Michael, but the truth is that one of the counter-arguments, and this does have to be taken into consideration, is that it does undermine the notion of free speech. And whether or not you as an individual or members of the Jewish community agree with what is being said during events held during Israeli Apartheid Week... The bottom line is that it's someone expressing an opinion, and surely we live in a country where people are allowed to express an opinion. Yeah, but hold on a second. Equality legislation in our country has evolved over over many years, decades in fact. Would you say it was okay for someone to be discriminated on the basis of their sex? There's a difference between discrimination and expressing an opinion. No, but in terms of the definition of anti-Semitism, which the government say that they're going to adopt, that gives the practical examples of how anti-Semitism manifests itself. And the situation we now face is that people disguise their anti-Semitism by being anti-Israel and expressing extreme views which are unacceptable about the state of Israel. I never made up the new definition. I never said to Theresa May she should adopt it. She did that of her own volition. So now it's been adopted by the government. They have to put it in place. 
And just in the same way as equality legislation evolved through sex discrimination, race discrimination, sexual orientation, and the religion, all those things changed. In the same way, this legislation has to evolve as well. And if we are going to adopt this new definition of anti-Semitism, the law must be upheld. How much do you understand that those who believe what is being claimed in Israeli Apartheid Week is actually something they believe? Or or do you think they're just following a trend? Well, you know, the worrying thing for me is uh, I'm of a certain vintage that I was a a child when the Six-Day War took place. But I remember all the incidents in the news like the Munich massacre and the first intifada and the second intifada. But there's a new generation growing up who don't have even my experience of history. They don't have the older generation's experience of history. And they actually believe some of the nonsense that spouted at Israel Apartheid Week. They actually believe, for example, that a state of Palestine existed at some point in the historic past that was democratic and free and was taken away by the Israelis. And the problem we have, if we bring up people believing fake news, it didn't just start with Donald Trump. We bring up, bring up people dealing with fake news. How on earth are we going to get to a position where we can have peace in the Middle East? Well, certainly is a nice thought. Michael McCann, director of the Israel-Britain Alliance, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I would like to point out at this stage that there was an attempt to contact Israeli Apartheid Week to invite them on the show, but at the time of recording, they had yet to get back to us. If anyone from the organisation wishes to partake in future episodes of The Jewish Views, they'd be welcome to do so. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, Israeli Apartheid Week. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to James Crickler from South London Liberal Synagogue about their fundraising campaign for Syrian refugees. But first, it's coming up to six years ago when singing sensation Amy Winehouse's life was cut so horribly short. Amy Winehouse, A Family Portrait, is a returning exhibition on at the Jewish Museum in Camden and will showcase some of her personal belongings and it will coincide with a new Amy-themed street art trail as well as an installation by the name of Love is a Losing Game, of course, one of her hits, by street artist Pegasus. It will run from the 16th of March until the 24th of September. And at a time like this, who better to speak to than the man who knew her best, her father Mitch. Entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Mitch about some of his memories of Amy and the exhibition itself. Kate started by asking him whose idea the exhibition was. The idea of the exhibition was my son and daughter-in-law. Alex and Reva, and they curated the original exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Camden, and they did a great job. It was a very moving tribute and exhibition, and I think they did a marvellous job. Was the, I mean, it's it's obviously still, must be still quite hard, the hard thing to talk about, Amy, but was there a particular time that you felt it it was the right time, or is there a time that it was put on, put it on now for a reason? Put on now for a reason. Yeah. Well, don't forget, originally it was in the London Museum two years ago. Right, so, so it's just been brought oh, here. Four, four years ago. Well, four years ago, actually, because I'm at my son's. So it was four years ago at the London Museum. So this is this is sort of a triumphal return. It's been all around the world, and it's back in London. But this isn't the, the debut of it. As I say, it's been all around the world. 
Okay, it's called a family portrait. <coughs> For yeah. people, obviously, because a lot of people won't have seen it and they want to know, what should they expect to see? Well, I don't know what they would expect to see, but I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, there's there's been lots said about Amy and she was a superstar and the drugs and alcohol and everything else. And this is about a normal Jewish kid growing up in North London, being part of a large family group. And it's kind of, it, it's very normal. It's the sort of normality of it, if that's the right word, of it, which, which I think makes it, uh, that's my grandson in the back room. You know, I think that's what makes it so poignant is, is that people think that Amy was this great superstar and everything else. In reality, she was just a normal kid, you know, a normal kid from North London with parents and brother and uncles and aunts and babies and everything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like I can hear the family going on behind you. How yeah. did you originally decide what was going to go into the exhibition? Well, that was that was very much up to my son and my daughter-in-law. They curated it and, you know, we had obviously lots of stuff that belonged to Amy and there were things that she kept which people don't normally keep, which was kind of also a, an insight into her personality. You know, she kept her... Uh, school tie and she kept I mean from junior school she kept her blazer or she kept Alex's blazer and she had her sweater from junior school obviously these things were very important to her yeah so you walk around and you see her her clothes her books and presumably obviously photographs yeah and when you when you walk around how do you feel when you what do you what did you feel looking around the the exhibition you know I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more used to it now but, you know, originally it was, it was incredibly emotional because it, it obviously reminded me of a time when, you know, we were all together. And, uh, you know, my mother and my stepfather and my uncles and aunts, they were lovely times. And, of course, Amy was a part of a very, very large family. Unfortunately, it's not so large now. It was very emotional and I found it very difficult. But, you know, once you get used to it, it's, it's actually very lovely. You mentioned her, her blazer and, and tie and things like that. Are there any other special favourites that you think captured her as a person that are, that are on, in the exhibition? Well, there, there's so much in there. You know, there's a record collection, there's a record player. When she moved into the big house in Camden Square, she thought that she'd lost all her family photographs. And then she found them. And then, then two days before she passed away, I was going to New York and she called me and she told me that she'd found the photographs in the big suitcase. And of course, those photographs in the suitcase are in the exhibition. So that's extremely poignant for me. And, yeah. you know, and what's even more poignant is, is that there's only one or two of those photographs that are actually of Amy. The rest of them are of her family. And that's what she, you know, loved to do. Just look at her pictures, her family pictures all the time um so it's very poignant yeah a a real sense of belonging and i'm sure that will come out in in the exhibition and how is the how is the family coming to terms with her passing i think it's been what nearly six years now well this year will be six years in july that's quite right and it's difficult but you know we have the there's nothing we can do about her passing it's it's happened and we've got to make the best of it and we have a, a wonderful foundation in her name and uh among many other things, we have a schools project where in the last two years we spoke to 140,000 kids about the dangers of alcohol and drugs. I think that we're, we're making the best of a, of a horrible situation and keeping Amy's name alive. Mitch Winehouse, father of the late Amy Winehouse, sharing his memories of his daughter and talking about the return of the exhibition called Amy Winehouse, A Family Portrait. It's on at the Jewish Museum in Camden from the 16th of March until the 24th of September. 
Let's find out more now about the exhibition itself. Kate's had a bit of a busy week. She also caught up with curator Joe Rosenthal from the Jewish Museum. And Kate started by asking Joe where the exhibition has been following its recent tour. It's been all around the world to various different continents. So it started out touring to Amsterdam, the Jewish Historical Museum there. From there, it went on to the Bet HaTfutzot Museum in Tel Aviv, and then to the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, and also to the Jewish Museum in Vienna. I think I might have got the order a little bit wrong, but there are the, they are the venues. <laughs> That's incredible. And then it's come back to London. And it's coming back to London for a proper showing this time. Originally, it was on for a very, very short period of time. What was as a sort of just just a start because that's where she started and then. Yeah, to be honest, the exhibition, I mean, the genesis of the exhibition is through uh, the family contacting us. It was put together at very short notice. So we already had a schedule that was full and we couldn't extend the run in the way that we wanted to. So um, that's why we're bringing it back right now. And how did you go about putting on the exhibition? So we worked with Amy's brother, Alex, and his wife, Reva, who originally approached us wanting to offer us some of Amy's dresses for display in the museum. And it very quickly became clear that they had a wealth of amazing material from her life, from her kind of family history, her uh, music collection, her uh, fashion and clothing collection that had lots and lots of very interesting stories that showed a different side of Amy. And uh, we worked with them to put together an exhibition that is quite unusual and it's quite unorthodox in that it's not like a normal museum exhibition where there are objects and there are texts that we write. We gave Alex the uh, job of telling the story of all of these things. So it's a very intimate family portrait that comes across. Yes, because it is called family portrait. So, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so it's yeah. like it gives a clue. And is the music playing? Does one get a little sense of her professional as well as her family? Yeah, there's a lot of music in the exhibition. We made the decision that visitors would be kind of walking around seeing all of the stuff in the exhibition whilst listening, not necessarily to Amy's music, but to the music that Amy listened to herself. So not necessarily her own voice, but all of her music collection. And we have a really beautiful handwritten track list that she made when she was very young that is the basis for the soundtrack to the exhibition. But obviously people in the exhibition get to see Amy uh, performing and uh, can listen to her music in some of the exhibits as well. There's a lot lovely video of her at Sylvia Young School in the late 90s performing on stage in a school performance which gives a sense of the massive talent that she had even at that very young age. You know it's funny very often you see exhibitions about a person and which can either be a tribute or almost like a shrine to them and I don't Mm. know how you can make one or the other because the family is going to be more likely missing them and yeah well, it's really amazing that you mentioned that, actually, because the very, very first words of the exhibition from Alex are, this is not a shrine, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is which gives you a sense of the tone that he's going for. It's quite irreverent. This is very much the voice of an older brother who had a relation, you know, who had a sibling relationship with Amy and spills the beans on, on lots <laughs> of family past. And it's not a, in any way an exercise in building a shrine to her. It's very much, it, it's very playful and, um, and affectionate. And I think what, what we're trying to do at the exhibition and definitely what the family were trying to do was to give people an insight into who she was. Obviously, it's at the Jewish Museum, so particularly who she was and how she was shaped through her Jewish family and her Jewish roots and how important that was to her, because that's not something that obviously has come across in other depictions of her through the press and the media. I understand this exhibition is complemented by some new themed street art. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, we wanted to do something special to celebrate the return of the exhibition after the international tour. And so we worked with an organisation called Global Street Art to develop a new trail of street art across the streets of Camden Town, which was obviously Amy's home, which features work by lots of internationally renowned street artists. And the final stop in the trail is an installation called Love is a Losing Game by the street artist Pegasus. We've commissioned him to produce a really wonderful new series of works about Amy that is on the ground floor in the museum throughout the um, exhibition. If people want more information, where do they get it? If you go to www.jewishmuseum.org.uk, all of the information will be on there. The exhibition runs from the 16th of March to the 24th of September. And we have a really fantastic programme of events um, to complement the exhibition too. So there's going to be a, a lot going on over the next few months. Joe Rosenthal, the curator at the Jewish Museum in Camden, talking to entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton there. For more information on the Amy Winehouse exhibition, or indeed the art display by street artist Pegasus, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find all the details there. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, you can look at our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll find all the details there. Now, the Syrian refugee crisis has been a subject of enormous contention, especially within the Jewish community, with so many making comparisons to our own heritage. South London Liberal Synagogue has launched their Abraham's Tent campaign in a bid to help one particular fleeing family. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to James Crickler, the vice chair of the synagogue, to find out more about it. Diana started by asking James who was architecturally responsible for this project. The architect of the scheme, if you take it literally, is me. As in, I've drawn the plans. I am an architect and have walked around the current space that is the the disused caretaker's flat and have come up with the revised arrangement, if you like, moving a few bits and pieces of walls and that sort of thing to turn the one bed flat into a two bed flat. So that's the literal sense. In terms of the architect of the the scheme as owner and leader of it, that would be Alice, who's our chair, and others on the the Abraham's Tent team. That brings me to my next question. Abraham's Tent is a wonderful title for it. I assume it's got biblical references. Yes, very much so. The reference is to Abraham's Tent, which was uh, traditionally said to have been open on all four sides, thereby welcoming any visitor from any direction. And I think symbolically of any persuasion. And so that is our uh, representation of our mission on this one. Now, to get back to the design of this particular flat, is there anything in it that a Syrian family moving into would need that might not be there, which would mean that you would have to redesign part of it? Are their expectations going to be met, in other words? Now, that is actually a very interesting question. And I must say one that we haven't put that much thought into on the basis that we are treating this as very much a sort of simplistic approach, if you like, of taking a space that is 
defunct and turning it into something which can be useful. And also from the point of view of imagining that a Syrian refugee family would be very happy to have a, a newly renovated flat, which would be a good space. In terms of what they specifically might need to suit their culture or background, haven't really considered that. And I, I think that would be something we would look into. We obviously realise that you're hoping to rehouse one Syrian family presently. But is your goal wider than that? In principle, what we're trying to do is to assist with Lambeth and the government and uh, you know other organisations, Citizens UK, etc., who are trying to bring people into the country. Not enough, in our opinion, in general, but it's what's going on and they need people to support it. Where there is a, a space that could be used that is currently unoccupied or being restricted from use for some reason, let's try and bring it into use. Let's try and remove those restrictions. Now, the whole project, in fact, is significant in that it appears to be the only example of its kind across the whole of London. Is that so? It is in the sense that it's, uh, I suppose, a, a Jewish community helping a, a Syrian, probably Muslim family. It isn't unique, though, in terms of people lending their, their spaces or, or finding ways to help. So I've spoken to an acquaintance whose wife is a member of a church and they had a, a flat I'm aware of that was still a, a flat in good condition, just wasn't being used in the way that it could be and they made it available. I'm also aware that the local mosque nearest to us, they have, I, I believe the leader of, of the congregation there has shared his home by actually dividing it in half and welcoming a family into his own home. Good heavens. So this yes. whole project is very cross-cultural then. It includes not only your synagogue as a liberal synagogue. Mm. Is the United Synagogue involved in your area as well? They are involved, as in they have a, a congregation, but they are not involved with this project as far as I'm aware, although there is no you know, restriction on anybody joining the Abraham's Tent team. And in fact, there are a lot of local people that are getting involved, and not all of them are members of our synagogue. We had the launch event on Saturday, which was very well attended, with members of all sorts of faiths and communities and organizations that deal with helping refugees or other sort of drop-in type centres. We are very strongly linked with Faith Together in Lambeth and uh, they were well represented as well. So it is cross-community in, in that sense. James Crickler, Vice Chair of South London Liberal Synagogue, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about their Abraham's Tent campaign, which was launched to help rehouse a Syrian refugee family. For more information, or if you think you would like to help, then have a look at our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link to the South London Liberal Synagogue's website with all the information. Still to come on what appears to be a very packed week here on The Jewish Views, we'll have a delicious idea from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips as she gives us a recipe for Purim. Plus, Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK will have a very timely rabbinic thought for the week. But first, just ahead of our schmooze, there's just time to tell you about a very special podcast that will be available soon from The Jewish Views, all about Jewish Book Week. Entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton and community editor Diana Toman, who both happen to be fairly keen bookworms, have been sampling the delights that this year has to offer. They'll be speaking to some of the speakers as well as the attendees. 
So if you were unable to attend for whatever reason, do make sure that you listen to what promises to be almost as good as attending the event for yourself. That's the Jewish Views does Jewish Book Week, an additional podcast available very soon. And needless to say, we will keep you posted through our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. And the subject today is based on our main news story, Israeli Apartheid Week. The annual occurrence sees a series of international lectures designed, and I'm quoting here, to raise awareness of Israel's settler colonial project and apartheid system over the Palestinian people and to build support for the growing BDS movement. The question is, how do campaigns such as the IAW impact upon global Jewry? Also, what does it do for a country that we already know doesn't have the best PR in the world? Jenny, let's start with you, if we may. How do you think Israeli Apartheid Week affects the world's perception of Israel, if at all? I think the problem is twofold. I think that Israel Apartheid Week, as it's currently formulated, really only affects on the front line students on campus. I would imagine that most people in the British Jewish community, at any rate, have no idea when Israel Apartheid Week is, what it is, when it's going on. It doesn't affect them at all. Is that um, a bit of a worry that nobody knows about it? I think That we don't? I think that it's the students who are facing it on a really frontline basis, and they're the ones who have the most trouble with it because most of these events, and, and actually I think it's a bit of a misnomer to just call it lectures because it's stunts and it's occupation walls and checkpoints, fake checkpoints set up on campus, that kind of thing. I think that it, it's the students who suffer most from it and more help should be given to them to deal with it. Fortunately, there seems to be some kind of tide turning, but I think that most people in this community have no concept of what it means. Which way is the tide turning? Well, insofar as for the first time this year, and it's in its 13th year, remember, three different universities have told the students which organise Israel Apartheid Week that they're not going to be allowed to hold such events on campus because... They contravene the definition of anti-Semitism to which the British government has signed up. The events that are held under the banner of Israel Apartheid Week impact negatively on Jewish students. It's not safe space for them on campus and the universities won't allow the events to take place. And that's directly because of the government signing up to Absolutely. the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Absolutely. Right. They, each of these three universities have said that they feel that the activities would be deemed unlawful as a result of what the government has done. Of course, it doesn't mean that everybody accepts the definition of anti-Semitism. The fact that three big universities have changed their minds on mm. this, that's quite significant. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Up until the last 
two years, I guess, I I really wasn't aware of this Israel anti-apartheid week at all as being a member of the general public. So what you said about it being for the students, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, but this year, it's different because of what's been happening in Israel. I have met people who've never heard of it before, but they've heard of it this year because of this extraordinary thing that Israel is doing at the moment by putting more and more people into Palestine, and it, it doesn't work. Well, I've heard about it more this year because of the thing that the government brought out, and that's why I've read more about this anti-apartheid week. And up until then, as I said, I hadn't heard about it. And so it didn't mean much to the general public. I had no idea it had been going for 13 years. No, 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 no. Really, I, I'm staggered by that. And I it, think, it, it, as you were saying about the tide turning, I think you're right, that's where the publicity has come from the fact that people are saying no and that's worrying that when people were just agreeing with it i knew nothing people didn't about know about it, it. Yeah. And See, that- un- unfortunately i think most jewish students and recent graduates would tell you with some feeling that it's become part of the wallpaper of their lives and that for some students israel apartheid week has become what is it i read somebody wrote in the telegraph how medieval Jews must have felt when it came to the Inquisition because it's an annual hurdle that they are obliged to face. And for the most part, it's brought denunciation. Obviously, nobody in the community, when it's brought to their notice, approves of it or, or, or says anything yeah. in support of it. But for the most part, the students have been left hanging out to dry and defend the, for do themselves. Do you think the anti-Semitic bill then has actually made it worse? than helped us along with it. Made the, anti, made the Israel anti-apartheid week more recognisable, consequently making it worse for Jewish people in the country. I was told, as I tried to say a moment ago, I was told by a student at a university in London who told me that it had never bothered him before until this year. And he didn't say it was because of the government's fighting against anti-Semitism. He told me it's simply because of what is happening between Israel and Palestine at the moment. And I I think we've got to think about it more clearly that way. It's a shame, isn't it? Because uh, as far as I know, I don't think there is apartheid in Israel. Uh, not as we think about it. We, when we think of apartheid, I think we think of South Africa, don't we? And what well, maybe apartheid's the wrong word, but this particular student said to me, it's rather like the Nazis going into France. And this mm. is a Jewish student talking. Mm. What is like the Nazis going into France? Well, the, the numbers of Jews who are now settling in parts of what Palestinians believe to be Palestine. This student had never thought about this. And he's been at university for a couple of years. And it never occurred to him before. It never bothered him before. And I'm merely quoting what I was told. Mm. I Although, think he's led a, a very sheltered life then yeah. in that case. Yeah, I, well, maybe. So. I, don't, I don't see any tanks rolling through the streets and rounding them up and putting them in concentration camps. Yeah, but really, that's, I think it's a bit it's that's, extreme. That's, analogy, just, that's being silly. It's because of what the reaction that these young students have. I, I do get that because I'm, I'm sitting here kind of picturing myself because i graduated from university 17 years ago not that long before israel apartheid week started i've I've just found out Mm. and i'm now putting myself in the position of what if it had been on when i was there what would i have done and thinking about it now i think i would have been infuriated by it i really hands up here i don't think i would have dealt with it particularly well 
And I think you're right. The fact that these students are being left to deal with it is very unfair. They don't have the tools to fight against anti-Semitism. We find it difficult enough. And I think there is definitely something needs to be done about that because that, that's really worrying because that could easily skew their view of Judaism entirely. It could push them away, could make them stronger towards it. But that's a real worry that they, they've been left hanging alone. There are some efforts to try and, and help them. One thing is the former chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, has got together with a very nice company in Israel doing a whiteboard animation. Yes. And he's released it this week and it directly tackles the subjects that come up over and over again at Israel Apartheid Week. And it's a nice cartoony way for the students to um, absorb it and use the material in it as a resource with which to fight some of the allegations that will be made against them. Clive, I take absolutely the point that you're making that Israel doesn't help itself and that whenever things swing to the right in Israel, it's that much more difficult for the students. But to be honest, over the last 13 years, you could point to any number of circumstances where Israel, perhaps you could say, has not been behaving in the best fashion. And the students still have to deal with Israel Apartheid Week in one way or another. So I don't think it matters terribly. I mean, it's not what I would be happy seeing more settlements and more settlers. But that really doesn't make that much difference concretely no, there's to, always the, going to what be the students yeah. have to deal with on a daily basis, never mind yeah. a yearly basis. I'd just like to make the point that the video you were talking about, Lord Sachs, the little animated video, is on the Jewish Views website. So if anyone wants to see that, go to jewishviews.co.uk. And it is, it's a really very well thought out piece of animation and it's, it's useful good. as a resource i think yeah yeah but how does one help the jewish students who are feeling particularly persecuted by this this year but is it the students that are the first line of defense that we need to defend or do we actually need to tackle the fact that israel's been called an apartheid state so freely because, as, as you I said, mentioned, well, that it's again, so blatantly not an apartheid Because Israel state. public relations is not good. I mean, Israel could tell about the number of Syrian refugees they've taken in, the number of Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. Now, I was, I was told, not, not, by, not by this ambassador, when I interviewed Ron Prosser a few years ago, and I questioned then their publicity, he said, we give the press absolutely everything. We can't control what they print and what, the, what they say on radio and television. We tell them everything. We send our publicity out, but we can't do anything about it. If they don't wish to print it, they don't wish to print it. Is that totally true? Because I read in... I can't really remember where I read it now, but it was in one of the Jewish publications. I read that Israel doesn't want to tell people that they're taking in Syrian refugees. They don't think it's a good idea. They just are doing it. Maybe now, but he said that was a few years ago, obviously, when he was in office. The fact that Israel is, is doing something like taking in Syrian refugees, and let's be truthful, they're not taking in that many. They are taking in... They're taking in quite a few. They're taking in a number, but it's, it's not in the millions. It's not, it's not even in the thousands. However, they're doing it, and it's a good thing. And it should be known. But that's not going to stop the people on the BDS campaign or anybody who's setting up events on Israel Apartheid Week, they are going to accuse Israel's defenders of what's known as whataboutery. 
because one positive story really doesn't negate their worldview and their narrative. But that isn't the only positive story. There are many positive stories. I'd just like to read out why Israel is an apartheid state. Israel has Arab MPs sitting in Parliament, an Arab judge sitting on the country's highest court, an Arab is chief surgeon at a leading hospital, an Arab commands a brigade of the Israeli army, others head university departments, Arab and Jewish babies are born in the same delivery rooms, attended by the same doctors and nurses. Well, I was just about to quote some of those things. Exactly. Exactly what I said earlier on. Why is this not pushed out more and more and more? This is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think you're right. I've got a comment on our Facebook Live here from Ben, who said, most people fail to realise that the Israeli government does not represent all the views of its citizens, and especially Jews worldwide. Which I think we all agree with that. He goes on to say, Jewish students and faculty should be organising in solidarity with Israel. Unlike the opposition groups, they should be open to conversation. It's a good point. How, how How much dialogue is going on? between the students and the, I don't know, part of the Knesset that, that would deal with public relations. I, I mean, I surely they should be getting support from there, from somewhere. Well, that's what I've been trying to say. Yeah. No, no I, I agree with you, Clive. I think we're doing them an injustice. And I think Israel are doing themselves an injustice as well by not promoting this kind well, of Well, there you've put it, and I think that's a very good idea. And I'm afraid time is up and then we'll have to leave it, but it's good to think about that. My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk or you can go to our website jewishviews.co.uk where you'll find all the details there. Now, just ahead of our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time for a word from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips and she has a delicious recipe for Purim. What have you got for us today, Denise? Today it is Mojajara, a Lebanese rice and lentils dish. This recipe takes about 20 minutes to prepare and about 50 minutes to cook and serves about eight people. The ingredients are 300 ml of sunflower oil, and that's for deep frying, so don't worry about the oil content. Six onions, four tablespoons of plain flour. So what you're going to do, you're going to slice those onions into rings, dust it in flour, and then deep fry them. And this is what is the magical part of this recipe. The rest of the ingredients is 300 grams of green lentils, two tablespoons of olive oil, four tablespoons cumin seeds, four tablespoons of coriander seeds, tablespoon of turmeric, two teaspoons ground cinnamon. So we've got some lovely spices and wonderful flavour. And you're going to use those spices to cook the rice. And that's 500 grams of basmati rice, a tiny bit of sugar, teaspoon, and then a litre of vegetable stock. So let's just imagine what we've got. We've got some beautiful deep fried onions and leave those to one side separately what you're going to do now is cook the lentils and you can cook those according to the packet instructions and if you're really lucky and have a steam oven cook them in the steam oven on 100% steam for about 20 minutes then you're going to heat up the remaining two tablespoons of olive oil and this is when you're going to fry the spices so that's cumin coriander 
and turmeric and cinnamon. Cook them for about a minute and then add your rice, sugar, lentils and vegetable stock. Bring it to the boil, simmer for about 15 minutes and then take it off the heat and leave for 10 minutes. And it is just beautiful. And like all my recipes, serve the stylish way. Add your fried onions and a sprig of fresh coriander. Delicious. Oh, I'm salivating now. Thank you to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there with an amazing sounding recipe for Purim. For details on that recipe and a link to Denise's website, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, now it is time for our thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. When we look at the current state of play of the support of Israel, we are faced with a growing realisation that a significant minority have a real problem with the existence of a Jewish state. What is lamentable is that some of that minority are actually people of the Jewish faith. Some will call them fifth columnists, some call them self-hating Jews. But part of the problem that everyone has is a failure to understand the connection with Israel, with Jerusalem, doesn't go back for the Jewish people 70 years or 100 years since the Balfour Declaration, but thousands of years. In fact, we're reminded this week as we go to Shul on Shabbat and hear the portion of Truma being read, the building of the Mishkan, the portable home of the Shekhinah, of the Divine Presence, which was built in the desert with one goal to eventually bring it to Jerusalem, to Israel, the home of the Jewish people. It therefore seems slightly strange when people talk about Israel as a modern state. Yes, it's true, it is a modern state in the latest iteration. But this is the third commonwealth. Twice we have had our state, once the Babylonians destroyed it, and second the Romans destroyed it. But we have davened three times a day to return to Shalim, and today we come very closely to 50 years since we have returned to Shalim. But a realization that the Jewish people in Israel is not a modern invention, but a 3,000-year-old connection, going back way before then to Avram Avinu, when God said to him, and to your seed, I will give this land. That is Israel. That is our nation. That is our people. And that is what this week's Sedra relates to, and what today's political sphere somehow fails to realize. Makes you wonder whether or not we'll ever see a world truly at peace with Israel. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw there from Mizrahi UK with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Michael McCann, Director of Israel-Britain Alliance, Mitch Winehouse and curator Joe Rosenthal. Don't forget the Amy Winehouse exhibition at the Jewish Museum. To James Crickler from South London Liberal Synagogue, good luck to them. And thanks to our other contributors as well. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.